You are Living in the End Times with Amos and X, a podcast about theology, theory, hijinks, pranks, and everything and nothing in between. So, how's it going? I'm good, Amos. How are you doing today? Good. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to start talking tonight about the aftermath of the climate report and the state of the left. Personally, I, <clears throat> I was a bit shocked at the lack of response on the in the generalized left. Uh, in mainstream, you know, Democratic Party, their main contribution to the debate was Elizabeth Warren releasing uh, DNA results claiming to prove right. that she's part Cherokee, which was immediately ignored by Trump and, uh, well, dismissed, I should say, rightly so, uh, and rejected by the Cherokee Nation, who basically said it was an insult to both them and DNA testing. Right. Uh and today or yesterday in a debate, Beto O'Rourke, who's this supposedly going to unseat Ted Cruz, possibly decided to adopt Trump's nickname for Cruz, Lion Ted. And 
this is sub- seen as somehow progressive in some sense. Whereas the mainstream media's response to the climate report, which is to say the left had no response to the climate report. Mm-hmm. Um, the mainstream media's response to the climate report is to public Forbes is now publishing anti-capitalist articles and pro-nuclear articles left and right. GQ is essentially saying we, the billionaires are to blame and we should take them out, you know, roughly regular Vogue is trying to become teen Vogue, uh, in the teen Vogue's radically anti-capitalist, uh, publications and the left sits on their hands. It, it, it scares me because those of us, as we've discussed, those of us who have followed, uh, the decline or the, I should say the acceleration of climate change over the last decade knew very well the contents of this report, but now everyone and their grandmother knows, uh, or grandfather knows exactly the state of affairs and exactly how dire the situation. And the result is the left is silent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to clarify, the the report itself indicated what? That, again, it's the middle of October 2018, and they said you have... The UN report says, what, we have 20 years at best, perhaps less than that, to actually turn this around and reverse uh, fossil fuel emissions or carbon emission. Right, at the... Um the conservative side says the the conservative conclusion of the report is that by 2040 um we will experience radical climate change and radical societal disruption um the more realistic report uh side of the report or it may have been a well there were two there was an ipcc and the un report the un report i think said 2040 the ipcc might have been the one that said 2030 i could be wrong about mm-hmm. that but uh, the 2030 seems a lot more real, re- realistic in terms of what I understand to be the severity precisely because these are not additive effects. These are exponentially intensifying effects to the point where one of the, I think the most dire prediction I've seen in the last year from, you know, serious climatologists and scientists generally was they say we have about five years left. And the reason is because once o- ocean currents shift, it's impossible to know what sorts of feedback loops will be triggered. Mm-hmm. So the the idea that we can go on as things have been is, at this point, literally a delusion. Mm-hmm. Which is why you have Trump with these you know, beautiful Trumpisms like his, his today, his natural instincts or that the climate scientists or his scientific instincts say that the climate scientists are wrong. Um, and then wow. this sort of almost like slam poetry on 60 minutes about how, well, maybe the climate, it'll go up and then it'll go down. Like, it, you know, clearly having no interest in listening to anyone, mm-hmm. which is not obviously is par for the course for Trump, but uh, these are sort of, these are these. This is proof that um, he has no. No one in the mainstream politics has any response. I mean, the exception probably would be Bernie Sanders. I mean, one hopeful thing I saw was that he had his Facebook page had posted a video about rising sea levels and climate change, and I think I believe it got like thirty million view Facebook mm-hmm. views in one less than a week, maybe even like three days, which is you know, equivalent to about 9% of the U.S. population seeing a video that Bernie posted mm-hmm. that was probably being suppressed by Facebook um, to some degree. 
And so Bernie, uh, notwithstanding then, the concern you and I are, are trying to, what you and I are preoccupied with this week is if, if the critique of uh, capitalism and or, um, I guess, uh, carbon emissions is coming from places like Forbes magazine, what does that mean for the left? And where the heck are they? Where have they been? And um, what, what's kind of the strategy there? And there doesn't seem to be one. Right. And the bleeding, I mean, just to add to that, the bleeding edge of the left, supposedly, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez decided to make the most ridiculous and patronizing claim I've ever heard of anybody who claims to be anywhere near socialism, which is that people who've read theory and who have principled politics and have had such a set of beliefs and principles for a long period of time are bougie because her argument is basically paraphrasing, but that her her mother didn't even have a grasp on the English language, let alone left-wing theory. Now, anybody with even a passing knowledge of the history of the labor movement in the U.S. knows full well that the Black Panthers, <clears throat> for example, um, had had a very precise like and evolving over time revolutionary theory operative with and that Martin Luther King was a reader and Malcolm X were both readers of Hegel that uh obviously the old communist party pre World War II in the US which was a major political force they had you know they were they were highly involved with like you know Lenin and <clears throat> uh directly with the Russian revolution Fanon and all that stuff later yeah i mean the like Malcolm X and so on and so forth the post colonial stuff right. and um even now, I mean, I know from personal, you know, sources on the ground, uh, when there were a few years back, there was an attempt, to, and I'm not saying it's over, but I'm saying this is the context. There was an attempt to organize some of the um, logistics warehouses for of Walmart workers who are temp workers, and there was a push on the ground for them. They were getting these workers who may or may not have been highly educated, probably not highly educated to be reading Lenin in a, you know, practical context. And the farmer, you know, there's a wonderful quote from um, the hammer and the hoe or whatever that <clears throat> it, which is about some of the radical farm, uh, farm organizing in the South in the thirties or in before world pre-world war two, who, we're talking about, you know, there's this great quote of this old timer who they're interviewing and they ask him about theory and praxis and he opens a drawer and there's shotgun shells and Lenin's state and revolution. He's like, there's your theory points of the book and there's your revolution or there's your uh, praxis, <clears throat> the shotgun shells. So this is just a, she's spitting on the graves of everyone that came before her who claimed to be anywhere near the left legacy. And the idea that workers are unable to read theory is the most reactionary bougie bullshit I've ever heard in my life. And so we're supposed to look to these people for leadership or even like, I don't know. I don't know what is expected of left politicians in the U S like it can't be this. It can't just be these disgustingly patronizing bougie claims that, working people can't read. I mean, that's effectively what she's saying and it's insane and it's not historically accurate. It's a lie. It sounds like something a state agent would say. And so in the wake of all of that, then if I'm understanding 
uh, what you were saying off here earlier is you think it's worth at least discussing um, if the left is nowhere to be found, if the right seems to be running the show, and if we're heading toward a very possible, um, I guess, end of epoch, if you will, um, end of days as far as we understand what our civilization has been like to this point, um, is it worth discussing um, the degree to which some sort of revolutionary move might be required of uh, just citizens on the ground, and how might that happen, or what might that look like, or where do we go? Right. So I think that, I mean... There's a <clears throat> there's a tendency, there has been a tendency, I think, in my involvement with the left of this avoidance of theoretical uh, engagement because it's supposedly impractical or it right. doesn't, it's ignoring the problem. Um, I think that it's precisely, I mean, this is, you know, Zizek's claim for a long time of the supposedly radical left that this impulse to action constantly is a defense against thinking that, <clears throat> that it, it unfortunately reifies the system in such a way that and I'm, I'm sort of, I'm commenting on what he's saying. I'm not quoting him obviously. Um, but that <clears throat> the, the need for constant action and engagement, unfortunately gets reified back into the system such that, it becomes a part of what's expected to happen. But <clears throat> when he's called for, you know, Bartleby politics uh, in the sense of like the, the Melville story novella about Bartleby the Scribner, who continues to show up for work, but continues when requested for labor to, <clears throat> you know, he's basically like, I'd prefer not to. And so it's this, he's not insubordinate. He just would prefer not to. So he's not actually breaking any rules of the organization. Right, right, and the it's therefore extremely disruptive. Right. And there's there, at least in the film version, which is sort of a modern take on it. Um, Wallace Shawn plays this wonderful Bartleby's boss, trying to sort of existentially grapple with what to do, and he can't figure anything out. And I think that's right. sort of the point: is that the power structure doesn't know what to do when we get silent. And that was Zizek's point. It's terrifying for the power structure to not hear open demands, which is why <clears throat> Zizek was defending Occupy Wall Street's right. form because Occupy Wall Street wasn't refused to make explicit demands. And I even had that experience here when uh, we were organizing Occupy Grand Forks, just largely in solidarity with Occupy Wall Street, which and this sort these sorts of solidarity actions and groups were forming all over the world. Um, after a meeting... <clears throat> A journal, a local journalist was there and someone pointed him to me to ask me questions. And immediately he was, you know, sort of flippant about, oh, well, what do you like? He was making demands of me and I was like, we'll see what I answer because we're not, you know, we're not here. We weren't there to appease the press. We weren't there to fall into line and immediately change the dynamic. Now, I mean, as a tactic, that's it is that's probably a good tactic in PR wise anyway, but I'm just mm -hmm. saying like, obviously the goal was not simply to participate in the standing order the way it was. And I think like being in New York and having a lot of sources who are close to the center of organizing could see very clearly how terrifying it was for this sort of refusal, this Bartleby politics of we prefer not to articulate demands to the power structure we prefer not to leave we prefer not to participate in the economy mm -hmm. literally it blocks away from 
the center of global commerce, it scared the shit out of the power structure. That's why there was such violent police repression and infiltration coordinated across all, all intelligence agencies, all domestic law enforcement, basically. Right. Because power anticipates and, in, in effect, is prepared for your, um, your rejection or your refusal. But if you don't offer that, they don't know what to do. Right. And... <clears throat> And Zizek's, like, writing around the issue was, like, he's, like, avoid false friends, like Bill Clinton at the time was saying, yeah, they, they need a set of demands. They need to get behind Obama's jobs programs. And <clears throat> Zizek said from a strategic point of view, that's like in clinching. It's like clinching in boxing where you hug the opponent. So you – but you – by pretending to sort – you know, it f obviously it's a boxing match, so you're adversarial, but you're hugging them so it looks like – almost camaraderie but it incapacitates uh, right. your ability to do what you need fight to do back. to to fight back and to win and so the <laughs> excuse me excuse me the um the situation that we find ourselves in is one of the aftermath of occupy but also the aftermath of bernie sanders where we don't have we don't. We no longer have public left left wing voices that are able to articulate this demand. Again, Bernie's still Bernie's sort of like in has a foot in both camps here. Uh, he's trying to reform the Democratic Party, but he's also like staging demands on. Um, I I'll leave aside the discussion of the Bezos thing because I think <clears throat> I think there's it's a little bit too cynical for my taste. Um, uh, so the m meaning, well, I guess, and talk about it slightly. Just that, in in order to a secure fifteen dollars an hour for Amazon employees, Amazon traded off by just cutting stock options and other benefits. So I mean, they, there's functionally no raise. It was just, it just shifted the accent, and then Bernie decided that this was a victory. I mean, maybe it's a slightly symbolic victory, but the people on the ground are getting fucked. So it's 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 a loss if people think that this was a win. It's a loss in the sense that like if Amazon seems less evil. They're the exact same amount of evil they were before, and, and nothing's they, and changed. And they win. Yeah, and they, they win. They win the PR war. Right. Um, <clears throat> but Bernie's, you know, climate change ad, that's important in the push for Medicare for all. I, you know, Trump seemed to tee that up last week when he was talking about, uh, what was it again? He said that, do you remember? A USA Today op-ed, op I forget the specific content. Oh, yeah, just, a, just blindly attacking Medicare for All with like in, in the face of the facts. So mm -hmm. this rare intervention for Trump to write an op-ed, and then it was just filled with lies, which mm -hmm. teed it up for Bernie to just make a video tearing down every one of those lies. Right. Um, <laughs> that being the case where the the right wing you know mitch mcconnell's the most the least popular senator in the country senator in the country bernie's obviously the most popular politician in the country and mitch mcconnell's still going after medicare medicaid social security the, right. and so to me i mean this has been the open plan of the ryan types for a long time and they've been saying it openly for at least a couple of years speaker of the house paul ryan yeah <clears throat> and th so this agenda is no secret it's it's an obvious point of rupture for everyone, including the apparently the. I was listening to this Chris Hedges interview with Jimmy Dore, and he was talking about how the Tea Party was in a position to sort of make a deal with the political establishment, 
And when it was offered that the social security would be cut in exchange for something else, even the, the tea party was like, no, that's not good enough. Basically the tea party was telling the right wing to fuck off because the trade-off for cutting social security wasn't uh, effective or, you know, wasn't good enough. What wasn't, didn't satisfy their demands. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> no, there's no base of the population that supports cutting social security, Medicare, Medicaid, that isn't, you know, within the top 20% of like the political class. Right. Um, yet they're, they're on this rampage that can't be stopped by the least popular Senator in the country. And so when are we going, at what point do we say, fuck it? The, the climate is going to maybe take out human society as mm -hmm. such uh, in a very short amount of time, and a like blink of an eye geologically, um, within our lifetimes, within the lifetimes of our children, grandchildren, etc. At what point do we say no? The system doesn't work, and we're done playing ball. Mm -hmm. We're we're done participating. We're done protesting in a way that's socially acceptable. Like I was having in, sort of along these lines, an interesting interaction with someone who's sort of. Uh, not apolitical, but definitely not as focused on politics as maybe we are. And, you know, a working person. And we got talking about climate change and she was, you know, asking, she was at first like, well, I don't even want to hear what you have to say, but, you know, because it would have probably been scary. And depressing, uh, right. <clears throat> uh, and I was like, oh, you know, it's not me saying it. It's the UN and the IPCC. And so I... She had, she was saying, well, you know, I do, I do what I can at a personal level, but I know that's not probably, you know, going to do anything or it's not good enough, but I don't know what to do. And I said, you know, and I pointed out that 71% of carbon emissions are the product of a hundred corporations. So it's not, it's not our fault as consumers right. that this happens and we can't fix it at that level either. Um, and so the only way forward, I was like, basically we, we need a civil rights, we need something like the civil rights movement, but, uh, orders of magnitude, you know, times a hundred mm -hmm. with people at every strata of society doing large scale civil disobedience, like on an ongoing basis. And her response was, and that'll never happen now. I don't, I, I don't like that. Um, right. I, I don't blame her for saying that because it seems impossible given that we don't have, like Chris Hedges was pointing out, we don't have left-wing institutions to push on the presidency like we did during, uh, you know, the New Deal days. Um, and, you know, with no historic, with no visible in one's lifetime, you know, this is a younger woman, uh, historical precedent for that kind of a pushback, it does seem impossible. And it is impossible from the perspective of the political uh, establishment. Right. But that's the purpose of propaganda, as Elaine Badu says. The purpose of enemy propaganda is to prevent the possibility of hope. It's not about repressing... Um, it's not even about repressing dissent or, like, coming after leaders. That's what the state apparatus is for. That's what the police is for and the intelligence agencies the purpose of enemy propaganda is to extinguish the possibility of hope insightful imagination right to and even imagine an alternative and that being the case 
we find ourselves without the ability to imagine, you know, it's like that Mark Fisher quote about it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And now we don't have to imagine the end of the world. The scientists are doing it for us. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I think we should take our point seriously. Now, obviously, if you draw the conclusions to that out, yeah, we lose and then we lose. Who knows how bad it gets? It's unpredictable. All that we can predict is that it will get worse if things continue the way they are, mm-hmm. not how bad and in what way, because that part is unpredictable. So um, <clears throat> in technological circles, they often talk about a technological singularity, which means a point at which computer tech and a convergence of tech- other technologies, 3D printing, uh, DNA manipulation, uh, nanotechnology, etc etc artificial intelligence when they converge and start combining forces or you know people combine them then we cross a threshold that's borrowed from physics a singularity is a point in which we can't see past in a black hole uh the event horizon of a black hole Mm -hmm. beyond which we don't know what there is because that's sort of the point and so they borrowed that term ray curls royal and his friends um colleagues from physics to describe the technological singularity now i uh they they he talks about a technological singularity in around 2040 so it's interesting that it the dates overlap with the apocalyptic climate reports um but i i take more of a bruce sterling has a slightly different view and his claim is that we're going to we, science fiction writer yeah, uh, slash cultural critic um, who he claims that we're not going to encounter one singularity. We're going to encounter multiple singularities in rapid succession. And I think, I think that's a much simpler way of understanding it. And I think that we've already entered that, you know, like with a proliferation of um, smartphones, that's its own singularity where, all of a sudden we have access to all this information that we never did before. And you then you can't even see the bottom of it. Right. Right. Uh, or t- hardly take in what you can see. Mm-hmm. Um, the proliferation of the internet such that we can do this show and have f- basically the same, we won't have the same level of starting out. Like we won't get as many retweets as like the Joe Rogan experience or something, but we have the same basic technology and the same basic access to that same um, marketplace same audience. Right? Yeah. A uh, potential audience. So, <clears throat> but um, my point there is that part of why thinking about a, a technological singularity, whether or not we agree with what Ray Kurzweil thinks will happen or in, in the order it'll happen or et cetera, et cetera. Um, if so long as we relate to climate change and resisting it as impossible, it maintains its impossibility. Again, I don't blame anyone for thinking that because how, how could it, how could we even see beyond it realistically since we've never seen anything like this before? And in most people, you know, anybody under the age of 30s lifetime, they've never seen a serious social uprising, you know, aside from maybe Occupy Wall Street, mm-hmm. um, such a large scale pushback. Plus, with all this onslaught of information, which is its own singularity, um, 
how easy is it to forget that Occupy was only seven years ago? And Standing Rock just... And Standing two. Rock two years ago, yeah. which is all, all but wiped from memory by just the onslaught of information mm -hmm. itself, the sheer volume of it. So what I've been... <laughs> what I've been toying with, um, considering trying to like, you know, what what constitutes a revolutionary uprising in this day and age, I've been rewatching season three of Mr. Robot, and what becomes sort of clear is, and it's this is this is historically fairly obvious that people extract themselves from their daily lives and you know join a cause. Like I think the easiest analogy would be the resistance to the Nazis, whether that's in within France or within Germany or Poland, um, where people are sort of playing double. They're playing. They're basically playing a game of. Uh, it's not a game, it's real, but I'm saying like playing a game of appearances where on the one hand they're, you know, operating as normal citizens and then simultaneously they're smuggling out Jewish children to avoid being killed or um, getting weapons to resistance fighters within the Warsaw ghetto or, uh, you know, in occupied France, any, any other sorts of sabotage and so on. I think that's that needs to be the idea of a model of resistance where we don't say to people, you need to quit your job and blah, 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 and do all this. We say, no, keep going to work. Keep doing everything you're supposed to be doing while at the same time finding ways to exploit your position to either you know leak information or build coalitions of operations that allow us to figure out how to resist more effectively using the resources at hand rather than relating to ourselves as these right-wing neoliberal subjects who owe something to employers and owe something to the state and owe something to society when the society is trying to kill us literally trying to destroy the climate as hard as possible literally making it impossible for people to get affordable health care and even if they have health insurance, I think, what was it like? The, the, just this massive amount of bankruptcies, mm -hmm. medical bankruptcies, like a million a year or something, medical bankruptcies from people who have health insurance. Right. Tens of millions who are underinsured. Right. At the very least. And then, <clears throat> which, I mean, that's not even a, like talking about the, the massive amounts of premiums they're paying plus the, the, I mean, I don't know how underinsurance is being defined, but sure. people who go bankrupt just paying for their meds and they have health insurance. Right. And so <clears throat> my view is that had Bernie Sanders won the presidency, which he would have, we know from polls, uh, if the Democrats themselves hadn't stolen the nomination from him, that's admitted now, um, had Bernie Sanders won, we would have Medicare for all. Now, why do I say that? If there's a Republican Congress and Bernie Sanders won, how would we have Medicare for all? 70% of the population supports Medicare for all, and Bernie would have been talking about Medicare for all every week, every day maybe, at which point it would have been possible to appeal directly to voters to take this sort of Trump's kind of strange, like, it's almost like ancient Rome appealing directly to the mob bypassing political channels and just continuing to hold these rallies, mm -hmm. um, not doing it in this right-wing reactionary way like Trump does, but appealing directly to voters to rise up and push senators and congressmen to enact Medicare for all on behalf of the presidential mandate. That would have been, who knows if it would have happened, but it would have been 
orders of magnitude more possible. And if we had Medicare for all, and if people didn't have to worry about continuing to work their shitty jobs to keep health insurance so their kids had it, and the, or the, you know if they have sick relatives or they themselves are sick, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, without that, without being compelled in that specific way um, to continue following the rules, then I think we would be in a position to fight climate change in the streets in in a much more radical way but we're that's not where we landed that's not where we are and so we need to stop the, i think the birth of hope in the age of trump is the moment where people decide i don't owe anybody anything that if if they can't guarantee us that human society will last 20 years then there are no rules that i have to follow in any way that is prescribed by the system at all ever there aren't any rules because they don't have a solution and they're not even pretending that they do in fact they're saying no we're gonna we're gonna open the spigot trump's the trump administration's claim is well um fossil fuels are gonna fuck us anyway so we might as well keep burning them okay then it's time to start calling that bluff and to start pushing back as hard as possible at you know find the fissures within institutions and organizations figure out how to work with people across social um divides across racial divides across class divides um my you know my dream was always and i don't mean this in the sense of it's a fantasy but i mean my what i hoped would always happen was that the environmentalist groups would start working with black lives matter would start working with labor unions <clears throat> would start working with you know indigenous organizations etc to establish this lateral solidarity that's the only plausible base of power that we can work from right so you mentioned the civil rights movement and that's what i've been trying to think about too for this particular moment with regard to the climate and the civilization itself Wondering if we need, and I don't mean this in a flippant or sort of obscene way, as some sort of Emmett Till moment that just gets people to think, okay, we need to do something on a sort of massive scale. And I don't know if we've reached that point yet, but I I wonder if we're getting there because I, or maybe just folks on the, the center and left aren't that interested in, in acting because they have too much to lose personally in, in many ways um, right now as opposed to in the future. But I'm wondering if... Uh, I'm wondering what at what point those folks will start to think about rebellion and civil disobedience, because not only is there no left or no institutional left, at least that can um, sort of speak for them or balance the scales, the right is sort of running away with things. But then we see that, oh, a lot of folks say, well, just, you know, engage the voters, bring out the vote, get uh, registered to vote in your respective districts and so on. But we still see the courts and uh, I guess many uh, Republican parties across the country at the state level uh, trying to stifle the vote, whether you're black, whether you're American Indian. We've seen that in North Dakota or whether you're just uh, you're poor. There's poll taxes. There are fewer actual voting uh, sites, uh, places to actually go and you can't access them through public transit or otherwise. So we can't even um, change the system as it exists through the electoral process. And at what point are people on the center and left going to figure out if there's no one representing me and I can't change the system through the system itself because I can't even vote, I can't even access the levers of power or sort of make an attempt to uh, speak my voice in public or whatever metaphor you want to use, at what point are they going to say, 
I have no option or alternative left except to disobey and ha- because I have nothing to lose, to your point. And I don't know that we've gotten there yet, but I, I feel like I, I'm hoping we're pretty close to that. Again, if people can't even vote anymore on a massive scale, they have no reason to participate in the democracy of the system as it exists now anyway. So what's stopping them from, from I guess, civil disobedience or revolutionary thinking or behavior? Um, and I don't, I don't know where to go from here, but um, I, I'm wondering, I'm hoping the climate report was going to be that sort of moment that I mentioned, that Emmett Till sort of thing, but I, don't, I just don't know, because to your point from the start, I'm not, I'm not seeing people responding in that way in the way I expected they would. Well, I don't, I'm, I mean, I assume by a Emmett Till moment, you mean like <clears throat> something that outrages people such that there's, uh, it sets off a social movement, but I would Correct. argue that that's not what happened in the mm. civil rights movement. That perhaps that uh, there's a narrative where that sort of kicks things off. But sure. That was, f- that ex- that happened in a situation of, active organizing so like the movement itself following the till murder you mean i'm saying what followed was the result of organizing that had started much before emmett till so for example like uh rosa parks is pointed to often as you know the someone the first person taking a stand but she was trained in nonviolent. Uh, all those sit down lunch counters sit downs rosa parks they all of that came out of folk school organizing by you know black left-wing activists who understood that there was just they couldn't rise up violently they Mm -hmm. were armed sure like king was armed personally for self-protection malcolm x was obviously had armed guards and Mm -hmm. all that sort of thing but they understood that nonviolence was the the only way that they could get any traction and build global solidarity just because of how brutal the repression is and was. Um, so I would, I would push back against the notion that the Emmett Till murder was the spark that lit the, you know, powder keg. Uh, it mm. may have galvanized more. It may have folded more people in possibly. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure if I I'm not sure if I know enough historically sure. to make that claim one way or the other, but um, I mean, it's a, it's a good point because I think like, I would just say the occupy wall street and standing rock to take recent examples. Those things didn't happen uh, as the result of some specific moment of like um, inflamed passion. Sure. Those things sure. happen as a result of people just deciding that they were were not gonna let this pass XYZ pass anymore without pushing back, without resisting, and finding creative ways to do that that are effective. Um meaning you know, so like take Standing Rock, like this this wasn't the only pipeline that's gone down right in the last decade. It's the only situation that anybody gave a shit about, precisely because it was occupied in a very specific way. And there was solidarity built, you know, there was organizing that went into it long before and continued throughout is what made it this moment of um, a model of what maybe can be done in a short amount of time to resist uh, serious issues. I mean, DAPL was strategic in terms of for the for the resistance movements in the sense that they were 
attempting to protect the Missouri River Basin from uh, pipeline spills. Now, obviously, the Missouri River itself feeds is the water supply for like whatever i don't know how many millions of people a lot of people yeah um but it also then feeds into the mississippi so it just goes all the way down to uh louisiana to the delta and so (laughs) the choices were strategic but the resistance was um was a conscious choice by people who just refused to keep playing ball and so you're asking like what does it take and i'm saying this is what it takes like being willing to say this is what's necessary rather than saying, I don't, you know, rather than it, to me, it's not so much. I mean, I've spent a long, lot of time trying to like sort of, uh, analyze my way into like, what's the perfect move. And I don't think there is one. I think it's the Rosa Luxemburg idea that we just intervene where we can and see what happens. And then revolutions take off on their own. There's no way to predict it before the fact. Um, but since we're so ideologically saturated in by such a constrained media culture such that you know there's so much enemy propaganda and they don't even talk about resistance movements as actually happening unless they're utterly forced to by just sheer volume of um attention being paid to it generally we have to start taking ourselves seriously as people who have something to add to resistance movements and not seeing ourselves as apolitical and not seeing ourselves as powerless. That's the main problem I think is to the easiest way to extinguish hope is to convince people that they're isolated autonomous individuals who can only act individually and who can't act together. And we can act together. We have proof of that. Bernie, all but winning Bernie winning except for the fact that he was so dangerous to the power structure that they had to steal the primary from him is all the result of small dollar donations and people organizing in steadfast and militant ways to make sure that he became viable and again would have won had they had the primary not been stolen and had the primary not been stolen <clears throat> or had he run as a third party after the convention, the, and, you know, we don't know, that's a little bit of a different question, but all of that being the case, we could have had a radically different future if it wasn't for, or present, if it wasn't for, you know, a couple of contingent moments. And so we'll never be able to predict those moments, those mm-hmm. contingent moments. Right. And we'll also never never be able to predict successes. So I think it's not about waiting for a moment to spark everyone else off. It's about creating the reality, the consciousness that, you know, even to whatever degree, I mean, just for example, I'm not saying we can do it in this show, but I'm saying this show, I hope, is an attempt to sort of break with the narrative that we can't do anything because, of course, we can, because that's the only way things have ever changed. I mean... Christian abolitionists were able to abolish slavery, which is, I mean, to me, that seems radically more difficult than anything we're facing now with the amount of exposure that the average person has, both to being exposed to information and being able to expose others to information uh, and being able to intervene. I don't think that, I don't think we face anywhere near that level of um, entrenched power. 
uh, at a material level. So <laughs> I don't think, I guess I would say, I don't think there's an easy way. I don't think we can rely on flashpoint events. And it does concern me that the climate report wasn't that moment, at least not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's part of, maybe that's part of the point that, how we frame what the what that actually means is a part of how what effect it has ultimately sure no i appreciate all that um and maybe what i what i meant to say is something that starts um to evolve uh whether it's a specific moment or just a collection of moments uh rosa parks and till were both in 1955 and it was stuff that um, folks of all political or racial persuasions, whatever, socioeconomic status, they couldn't ignore it anymore, is maybe what I'm getting at. And I think that's what Occupy and what Standing Rock as well provided, whether they were specific, quote, moments or not. They were doing something that suddenly the power structure and or um, just you know, middle class, moderate folks, they couldn't pretend to ignore this uh, question anymore. And I'm wondering at what point we get to that with the climate for most of the American public or the rest of the world, um, such that they do feel they have to act, um, they have to get involved because they don't have any other options, again, at the systemic or electoral or even local level, um, other than civil disobedience or sort of um, you know, rule-breaking and, and revolutionary thought. I think that people who are in solidarity uh, with these sorts of ideas, and by that I mean most people at this point, Sure. Uh, <laughs> these by these ideas I just mean the idea that we shouldn't destroy the climate, the idea that everybody deserves health care right. and a living wage and free college, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> so I, I either encounter, I, I think I encounter two general tendencies. One is they think they're powerless to do anything, mm-hmm. to intervene, or they think, you know, that th- they've somehow convinced themselves that, um, piecemeal is the only way forward. They, like they're of a more conservative bent in the sense that, um, you know, this is the way it is. Right. And which those are two sides of the same coin roughly, but I don't, I think I don't. Okay. Maybe I'll ask you this. What do you mean by time to act or that they're like, I don't, you're to me, you're framing it as they, that people don't aren't acting. And so when, what, at what point did they wake up and start acting? What do you mean by that? I guess like what, what constitutes action at that level? I think the actual, um, whether specific acts of civil disobedience and or revolutionary thought or just disengagement with the system as it is, and maybe we're seeing some of that through voter apathy or millennials who don't allegedly vote and so on. So maybe that is happening. But I I do mean um, the point at which people feel as if they can't as if they can't ignore the problem anymore. And I think there's a lot of that happening still in spite of, um, I guess, the reports that you and I are seeing. Hmm. Um, that is, I'm getting a sense that in spite of all the news that you and I consume, that um, things are looking pretty bleak, whether it's at the sort of level of fascism and totalitarianism at, with the government and or the climate um, and so on. I don't get the sense that people are taking it, enough people at least are taking it seriously enough to change the way they think about um, engaging with the system 
you know, as such. Oh, well, I don't think it's spontaneously going to happen if sure. that's what you're saying. So I don't, I don't think that moment will ever come. I don't, I think that's, um, and you don't think standing rock was an example of that. Just sort of a spontaneous thing where people organized and said, we it did. wasn't spontaneous. It was well, or it was plotted out and organized and there was organizing building up to it for years prior. Sure. So maybe but the way that it caught fire, if you will, well, that's, that was that, that wasn't expected, I imagine, by the organizers or anticipated, or by the state, for that matter. Well, if you're talking about miracles happening in that sense of like something catching fire that weren't expecting, then that happens all the time. Sure, that I don't think is exceptional whatsoever. But that's not a question of spontaneity at the level of organizing. That's a question of just historical contingency. And I guess that's my point with Rosa Luxemburg. Like the idea that like we just can't we can't predict what's going what moment's going to set that off right and no, so, I agree with that. Um, but I don't think what I read into what you're saying is maybe this is not intended, but the idea that that's required. No, somehow. no, I'm not. Oh, I don't okay. mean to intend that that's required. I'm just wondering at what point will people start to pay attention, and I'm wondering if this had been that moment, not a specific moment, but just a series of events over a course of a couple years, leading to people feeling fed up enough to get more engaged than they have oh. been. Well, I, I mean, part of it is like the there's nothing on offer as a means to engage. Sure, there, there's no functional institutional left in the form of like broad-based labor unions and so i mean this is the point chris hedges is making i was sure. referring to earlier um i think and i mean so i guess maybe that's part of what scares me is that that's not that the response there's nothing for people to plug into sure and so then sure. they draw the conclusion they can't do anything right. and maybe that's not it's not incorrect at the level of their experience and it's not incorrect at the level of, well, what am I supposed to do? And not having no one at really having easy answers. But I mean, I think, you know, barring without that base of leftist institutions as a way to feed into that, we have to come up with something new. We have, we need a new model. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think one of the ways to think about that new model is in, in my view is to just, start to take seriously the idea that a lot of what informs how people think about this is informed by media narratives about, um, like, I think you're articulating what people probably think about how these things happen. Well, there was a moment of, there's a flashpoint and then people woke up or they started engaging in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, which is sort of a Hollywood narrative and is never historically what was going on uh, under the hood, so to speak. So the part of the part of what need we need new narratives about how this works. And I think how it works is people start organizing themselves and then they try shit and they fail a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And occasionally miracles happen. Occasionally things catch fire because it, um, it works. They, they found the right formula for that moment, but we also have to be dynamic enough as revolutionaries to understand that, that from, situation to situation it's not necessarily going to work the same way right and i don't think you're suggesting that but i am i guess i'm just thinking it through like um well i'm thinking i don't mean to interrupt i think a lot of uh the ways in which uh, grail marcus writes about about pop music and does criticism and you know there are clearly 
examples of uh, bands or songs or performers, pop hits that were completely manufactured and they were designed to be to catch fire, right? And they did because they were there was a lot of organizing and planning that went into that particular single or that song by this or that artist. But then there are also uh, songs, bands, uh, performances that the the record companies that produced those albums and the record labels, they had no idea, did not ex- expect or anticipate to sort of take off in the way they did. And yet these things still did. And whether that was something like a Nirvana or a, I don't know, um, things that were completely unanticipated. And so those moments do happen. And I agree, you can't anticipate them or predict what's going to work and what's not going to work. You just got to try it all. Um, and I'm just trying to figure out if there is what direction um, we need to go either as people on the left or what the community out there, the larger community, what's going to work for them? Is it something that's sort of organized and well-planned and designed to be sort of agitating or is just something at random going to work? And of course, we don't know what that is, so we can't can't prep for that or can't try to uh, manufacture it. but I'm just trying to figure out, uh, you know, at what point is that? And, and um, I thought we were, I was wondering if we were at a moment like that, and maybe we are, and it just hasn't been long enough. Uh, are we at a moment like that now with this climate report or other sort of things that have been happening again at the federal and state level politically um, or not? And does it require organizing? Yes, you're absolutely right. I don't disagree. But are there other things that are just completely unanticipatable too that are going to sort of set people off Um and um, I, I, as again, there are there are things that have done that. We have historical examples. I was wondering if this is one of them, and I just don't know that it is. And if not, what you know, what will it take for some folks? I guess is the question I'm asking. I guess I yeah. Um, I don't know, but I right. also don't. I don't understand why it matters. Sure. Why does it? Why is why does it hinge on that in your view? Well, it doesn't hinge on it. I guess I'm just mm-hmm. uh, trying to figure out if we're. If we are seriously facing a potential end of an epoch, um, we got to get moving. And so strategically, as someone on the left, um, how do we try to get people organized and uh, concerned about this in a serious way such that they Mm. will either get organized and or take to the streets? Um, And yes, we should organize. But on the other hand, uh, we have plenty of examples of ways in which that sort of serious organizing stuff just doesn't doesn't fire people up, right? And so do we? is there another... Is there another approach that needs to be, or maybe there's nothing we can do, but is there a zeitgeist or whatever in play that will force people to take this seriously? And I don't know what that is. Again, I was thinking the climate report might be. Uh, Again, not a specific event, so I'm framing it improperly, but just the moment uh, that we're sort of, the environment that we're in, if there's something just going to click with a massive number of people at some point, I don't know what that'll be, that'll sort of force the issue. And that's what I'm looking for and hoping for but to me yeah i mean this is meant to a little bit be flippant but like you're asking for a reichstag fire sort of <laughs> moment and i think that that's not i think that's a right-wing way of looking at it sure. i mean all right um if i'm hearing you correctly i don't disagree that there's an urgency but i'm i guess i'm more suspicious of impatience around this at that level and the reason i'm suspicious of it is because i wonder not that it's not real but that i wonder how much of that is just the result of and i I don't mean to ascribe this to you i'm just saying this ideas about like 
we must act now again like mm-hmm. we do but if we're not acting from a base of understanding of like what's in play that's where i uh i think that that's where the problems lie so and maybe you're maybe this is addressing kind of what you're saying but i think that um the so i begun so i i think my general response to that is like um subway zizek a lot of people look on on the left look to him positively or negatively for ideas about what's happening and he's often pressed with this question well what are we supposed to do how do we organize and uh, most of the time he's just saying like i'm not i i'm trying to frame questions like a lot of the problems are about problems relate primarily to how problems are framed themselves and so if we're talking about the wrong problem we're going to end up focus on the wrong things uh in terms of being able to respond effectively and in my view the part of the problem here is the the telos or you know teleological view that someone's gonna that there's gonna be some salvation coming from the outside and i don't think that's how this is gonna play so earlier when i was talking about like I think it's time for people to uh, start viewing themselves as being able to intervene in these situations directly and do Mm -hmm. so from the perspective of what they have access to and to say, fuck the rules and fuck social expectations uh, around those things and almost, you know, and be even be cynical in their, you know, like sort of double dealing, like the, you know, the Warsaw resistance supporters and stuff like that. Um, if there's my point earlier when I said there's no rules means that well, we stop waiting for salvation and we start making it ourselves. Right. And so I'm not waiting for the mass of people to like figure it out. I'm saying, I think what we should be agitating for on this show is for people to do it themselves to say what, like, uh, just, you know, this is a, artistic example but i think it's relevant kevin smith did this stand-up comedy thing and then had a heart attack right after he filmed the show but he said he i thought it was interesting because he was like <clears throat> he was talking about how um he was doing stand-up comedy it was on showtime and you know it's funny and whatever and then but toward the end he's like listen if you have something to say if you think like you have something interesting to say then go fucking do it you know if you want to start a, if you think you could start a podcast you can let me tell you he's like nobody tells you that shit but he's like you think i know what i'm fucking doing he's like they let me direct movies i don't know what i'm doing he's like you think it's hard to play batman fucking ben affleck plays batman so right. and i thought that was I thought that was inspi- legitimately inspiring um, mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways, but I think we should take roughly the same view toward politics. You think you can do better than these people? You can. Mm-hmm. You think you have better ideas than them? You do. Part of the reason is because they're handcuffed by their own you know, special interests and moneyed interests and class position and all that shit. Yeah, they're not going to fucking save us. The cap- And you're not saying this, but I'm just right. saying the capitalists aren't going to save us technical solutions aren't going to save us because they will not make available the actual technical solutions like decentralized nuclear power uh, to get in front of climate change. I think we should just accept that we're fucked. I mean, I think that's the very, very first step. 
much prior to like who's gonna rise up and save us or how are we ourselves gonna rise up we're gonna do it by deciding that these people don't the fuck they're doing like that we agree with the scientists but we're not being offered any solutions and so it falls on us and that his history's open in that way that we can't we can't predict what'll kick things off if anything at that large scale we don't know if it'll just be a culmination of things we can't we can't really predict what resistance movements will rise up or not. Um, We don't even know if we're going to have a functioning judiciary in two years. So (laughs) that being the case, uh, that's what I want to implore people to understand is there aren't any fucking rules because there's no guarantees going forward. There's no social contract that says, Oh, you're going to have this, you know, whatever you work hard, you'll get, you'll be secure and have health insurance and your kids will be okay. No, things are getting worse. And now we're seeing that the environment itself is on the brink of collapse. So why fa- why keep following the rules? There's no Im- impetus for c- to continue doing so. And I think with that understanding, then we can start to see how it may unfold. But until that becomes uh, consciously understood and accepted, or at least considered by the by a lot more people. Right. I don't think we get anywhere near that. Maybe that's what you're asking for. That's what I'm asking yeah. is when, I mean, given all those realities you mentioned, the environment, the totalitarianism, the crumbling judiciary, at what point do people become conscious, enough people become conscious enough to feel the need to act on this? Um, and we don't know the answer to that question, but that's what I'm just, I was just pondering. Right. Um, and because I think, you know, people, people like us perhaps are closer to that point than others. Um, and why is that? And I don't know. There's a, a variety of reasons, I suppose. But Well, I'll give you the answer that I gave to Bill Ayers when he asked us in 2008 if we were going to vote for Obama. Um, he, he was sort of being, I mean, if people don't know who Bill Ayers is, he's a pretty controversial figure on the left. He was involved mm-hmm. with the Weather Underground. He was... Mm-hmm basically blowing up federal buildings and shit and then got he got acquitted for some technicality but i mean he's basically admitted in open court um and since then he's become just sort of this like i i'm i don't know he uh speaking tour like i think he had a teaching job for sure. a long time um but he was he was brought here to und as a guest speaker and we were having sort of a closed door meeting just political meeting not you know not not organizing anything, just talking. And he was asking us if we we're going to support Obama and trying to get us to support Obama. Um, some of us were saying, yeah, but then I'll protest him. I was saying no, um, in the sense of going and working for him is the idea. And there's this sort of sense of like, oh, this is how you have to play the game. And my, and what I said to him is Cesar Chavez, the legendary uh, farm worker organizer, was asked one time how did he organize so many people and he said well first i talked to one person and then i talked to another person and then i talked to another person and they said no no but all these people how'd you get this mass well first i talked to one person and then i talked to another. so i think it's just it's ultimately just shoe leather and it's um and that sounds stupid but i don't but that's historically how it happens. Mm-hmm. Like Chomsky says, you know, a lot of the stuff that I think podcasting is slightly unique because people actually sit there and listen to it. Um, I mean, I will, I'll sit there and listen to hours of podcasts because it's like talking to people. It's like being part of a, some sort of community, even though I, you know, I don't know them personally. 
Um, but generally like online social media based organizing doesn't really do anything. Like Chomsky's like this, the best form of organizing, the most effective is still just talking to people face to face. Mm -hmm. And I think that's every, anybody can do that. Um, and things can change very rapidly. So two years ago, if I would have been talking about nuclear power, which I was, um, you know, when I first, um, got a broader picture of the potential to basically save the world from climate change as a result and a better grasp on the underlying technologies, um, bringing that up on the left was a huge problem because there was a huge anti-nuclear bias because it was, they thought it, <clears throat> people's view tended to be that, and maybe this is still the case that, um, there's a one-to-one -one relationship between nuclear power and a nuclear weapons proliferation. Now there certainly can be, there's a way to design things that way, but it doesn't have to be. And we have access to safer technologies and the ability to build them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in a much greater, uh, capacity than ever before. Um, but, and so anyway, but my point is that, if I talk about it now, it barely, nobody nobody cares. I mean, in a good way. Like mm -hmm. there's there's no pushback. They buy it. Yeah, they they understand it now that it's possible, and so that's two years. Well, uh, I think there's no reason we can't. I mean, well, two years ago, or maybe let's say three years ago, before Bernie was on the scene, did seventy percent of people support Medicare for all? I doubt it. It mm -hmm. wouldn't have been an open position. Um, did the majority of Republicans support it? Absolutely not. So things, uh, I just think we should just assume another version of there are no rules is we can't predict the future. So like mm -hmm. rather than that being a source of anxiety or maybe a source of concern, well, what's, what's it going to take? Well, we also don't the other way it's open the other way. Things could change much more quickly than mm -hmm. we realize. And we don't know the effects of our interventions. So, you know, to whatever degree that's feasible individually mm -hmm. and, and part of the feasibility of individual action is to organize together and it amplifies our ability to act, you know, like, the old sort of cliche and the fact that it's a cliche is a good thing that like the only people that <clears throat> never underestimate the ability of small committed group of people to change the world. Right. In fact, they're the only ones who ever have, um, that remains true. Mm -hmm. It's maybe even more true now as we live in an increasingly atomized society in the, you know, the U S no, that's right. So, and I appreciate all that. Um, Again, to the Grail Marcus example, I'm thinking of things like, like Elvis Presley, right, or the Beatles. These things you could not have anticipated, but that just that, things that just somehow they caught on in a way that even folks who were had had no interest in that kind of music, they were caught up in the hysteria and they acted upon it. I'm not looking for that moment. I'm not concerned with it. I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering, I guess as a question. Um, might we be at that soon? Are we looking at that sort of moment soon where people will sort of shift in a way? Um, um, and could this report have been something similar to that? And, and again, I don't know, but... Um, oh, I'm, I see. I'm, and I'm looking toward that. I mean, and I say that, again, maybe it sounds reactionary, sort of too limited in terms of uh, just thinking of possibilities, but if what 
the reports are telling us are true, if what you're suggesting is true about the judiciary and the environment, and I don't disagree with that, we got to get moving on some of this stuff, right? So I don't want to sound impatient or sort of controlling rather than just letting things play out. But I'm, I am wondering, hey, public, um, I think we need to get moving on this. And I'm wondering what, you know, if that's going to happen. So, I, yeah, and I would say, let's stop wondering if it's going to happen. And let's say we need to make just it do happen. It. Sure. I'm, sure. I'm down for advocating for right. it. Right. Um, yeah, the Beatles example is interesting. I was just listening to a Joan Jett. Uh, was, Mark Maron was interviewing Joan Jett, which was really good. I, Joan Jett's maybe one of the reasons that I ever gave a shit about punk rock or had any hope as a child, to mm-hmm. be quite honest with you. Um, you know, just a total pillar of my reality. Uh, but they were her... <clears throat> she was being interviewed with her... I can't remember how they 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 like work together, but he's not in the band. Um, and they were talking about the music business and how you can't predict what's going to blow up, and that the Beatles had to. I think they were getting rejected year after year by record companies mm-hmm. in England. Uh, they just nobody gave a shit, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, they're the biggest thing ever, whatever. Uh, you know, we can argue bigger than Jesus. We can argue about whether or not that's. We agree with that um, personally, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm not a huge fan. Me either. Um, but uh, what I would say is, yeah, if the I don't, I think the only the the main implication of your question to me, the the main progressive implication of your question is, can this happen? Yes, it can, and right. we have examples. So, right. um. I'd rather be in the mode of affirming, yes, it is possible because we know it's possible. And even if it does seems impossible or even if we say it's impossible, we don't have a choice. So one of the I really like Chris Nolan's uh, Interstellar up until they go into quantum land because that's then it gets stupid, very stupid. (laughs) But pushing books off the bookshelf. (laughs) Yeah, it becomes this strange like uh, what's the what's that kid's book with it? cupboard the um, indian in the cupboard yeah something like that just this very strange magical logic but everything up until that i think is a great model of like how to how do we move from the impossible to going well beyond what anybody could have expected and the the given a looming catastrophe right and the key moment there is for me in the film is when the matt damon goes rogue and like tries to dock on the space station but doesn't doesn't do it properly and it blows the side out of it and starts getting sucked into orbit and the thing's spinning at like 30 g's and mcconaughey mcgoogaberry <laughs> matthew mcconaughey's character is <clears throat> moving he rather than retreat from the flying debris he pushes forward and um what's her name uh Amy Adams? No, no she's in the she's in the better movie. Yeah. But um it, uh and oh god damn. Anne Hathaway, sorry. Um Anne Hathaway is this, you know, number two, and she's like, What are you doing? And he's like docking. And she's like, and then the one of the AI bots says that's impossible, and he says, No, it's a, it's necessary. Sure. So I think that that's a good view of like probably where we find ourselves. Yeah. Yes. Things seem impossible. Yes. It seems like there's all this apathy. Yes. Uh, reality 
the ideological reality tells us we can't do this all the more reason to do it then. Right. And so, um, it's not impossible. It's necessary. It needs to be, I think our dictum as we begin to think about this, having the courage to push against, uh, it's fine. I mean, it's important to identify the ideological constraints and then immediately push past them. Mm -hmm. Because like you say, we don't have time not to, things are too dire to continue as we, as we've been going. And so if that's the case, then what does that cost us personally? I mean, that's the main question and what, what will be required to move us forward. And that's going to vary from person to person and situation to situation. That doesn't matter. The point is to not fall into the guilt either of not having done enough. So long as we're supporting people who are able to act. One of the greatest things Zizek ever said, in my view, was after sort of in the, in the spring after Occupy, a couple of organizers that showed up to a talk and they were just asking him like, you know, is this, kind of like, what should we do now? Um, what do you th- make of all this? And so on. And he was like, never, he's like, never assume that what you're doing doesn't matter because there's millions of people who can't be there by certain, you know, basically by circumstance mm-hmm. and never underestimate the power of the example, because <clears throat> we can't know everybody's situation and we know fully how desperate people are under neoliberalism. So any intervention can become as big as Occupy, can become as big as Standing Rock. Right. Um, <clears throat> we can talk about models for how to like organize in a way that maybe is more likely to bring that about. Um, and I think those are important discussions to have. But it's just as important to abandon, essentially abandon all hope in the current system mm-hmm. as a means to develop hope for the future. Right. No, thank you for that. And I agree with all of that. Part of what I was getting at is, or what I'm asking again is, given the hopelessness we see, you you and I sort of agree that we need to just push forward through the ideology and act and just sort of not not even act necessarily, but just At inspire least people. Think, yeah, think. And so what I'm asking too is, at at what point will we be able to convince enough people, I mean, not we, you and I, but just folks who are talking and thinking this way, convince enough people that they can act and that they do have agency because they're running out of time too. Um, at what point are enough people convinced? And, and I don't know, and you don't have an answer to that and I don't either, but it's just a sort of abstract question I had. Of if, if, it is, if we are really running out of time in this way, um, what, do, what does it take? to get people inspired. We won't know until it's too late. And I mean that on both in both ways that cuts one way too late and it's too late to do anything, but also too late in the sense of, Oh, we missed, we missed what was emerging and a miracle happened. Sure. I think that other, the latter is, I don't know if it's more or less likely, but it's just as likely. Um, so like what, what constitutes a threshold? What constitutes, I hate Mm -hmm. Malcolm Gladwell, but what constitutes a tipping point, (laughs) I guess is what you're pointing to. His afro is so beautiful though. I'm sure I, I don't, I can't speak to that. Honestly, I've never seen him, but some of those books are irritating for ideological reasons. Um, especially since that 10,000 hours thing is a bunch of bullshit. Um, but yeah, I think that we just have to, I think we have to stop giving a shit about that and right. just have the f- audacity and shamelessness to say, right. and uh, who cares? Per, per the example, right? Like, Setting an example. Who I gives mean. a fuck? Yeah. 
if we fail, I mean, maybe part of the, uh, you know, like my impatience with that, that line of thinking is if we fail, we're not any worse off than we already were. So we might as well do it. I stand by the building in the pouring rain and the premier bends to cut the tape and we hear the speech of the golden rules and we bow to republic we bow to employer and we bow to god the planes dip wings in victory rolls salute the power that the buildings hold we stand on the ground of the eternal hill and we give our lives for the motherland the men with dogs around the square the men with dogs big dogs they smile for the cameras and little girls we're innocent until proven guilty but we hide and we worry and we look away Cause we're innocent until we're proven guilty We hide and we worry And we look away